From Schwartz Media, I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. After the voice to Parliament was rejected, attention has been on Canberra this week to ask, what's next? But for those who held out any hope our politicians had a plan to address Indigenous disadvantage, they were sorely mistaken. Today, contributor to the Saturday paper, Daniel James, on whether there's a path to treaty and what the debate will now look like in a new chapter of Indigenous affairs. It's Friday, October 20th. So, Daniel, Indigenous leaders called for a week of silence to mourn the voice after it failed. But, you know, as scheduling had it, Parliament was back on Monday and there wasn't silence there. How has the fallout of the voice been discussed in Canberra? Well, I think if uh, the Albanese government had their time again, they probably wouldn't have had Parliament this week. Um, We're seeing all sorts of weird and wild machinations about, you know, why the voice didn't work, why it um, went down as resoundingly as it did. Uh, Melinda McCarthy has said that we could have done better, uh, the Yes campaign, that is. I think we could have been greater uh, if we'd enabled First Nations people to have their voice to the Australian Parliament. And so what we have to do now uh, is regroup, reset. Peter Dutton, as we always knew he would, has backed away from his calls for a second referendum into constitutional recognition only. We've always said, uh, I mean, right back to John Howard, all of my predecessors, uh, we've all had the same view, and that is uh, that we should have constitutional recognition, uh, but you can only do it when you're going to not be assured, but but have, you know, pretty close to an assurance that you've got a bipartisan position and success uh, at the constitutional uh, referendum now. There are calls now from the Greens for a a Truth and Justice Commission. It's clear that um, we need a process where First Nations people and everyone else are now able to come together to tell the stories about the history of this country and what it means for them. And Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles has come out and said that uh, it was the right result. So did the Australian people get it right with this decision? Oh, the Australian people always get it right. Um, but to say that that's the right result, I think, is a gross misreading of the nature of the debate and the end result itself. Uh, the Australian people always get it right, and we absolutely accept this result. And If you look at the official map from the AEC uh, that goes down to the granular level of polling booths, blue marking no, orange marking yes, you'll see... It is tinged with blue around the edges, but then in the black heart of Australia up through the north, you see all these orange spots at polling booths in remote and regional areas of the Northern Territory, Western Australia and Queensland, where there are a lot of First Nations-dominated communities. The vote for yes was resounding. And so any sort of representations from the conservative nose side in terms of whether they had their finger on the pulse of those communities, well, the electoral map shows that they absolutely um, did not. But the biggest and most telling thing from this week is that neither side had a plan B. No one has any firm plans whatsoever in terms of um, moving forward from here. 
Mm. And throughout our 7am series, you talked a lot about truth and we know how important truth-telling is when it comes to Indigenous issues, but the referendum campaign was plagued by lies. How were truths and lies reflected on this week? And I give the call to the Honourable Member for Warringah. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Prime Minister, consumers are protected from commercial conduct and advertising that is misleading and deceptive. Well, uh, Independent uh, MP Zali Stegall has a Stop the Lies bill that she has been talking about for months, um, mm. ever, really ever since she uh, was re-elected to her seat at uh, last year's election. Will you support my bill or introduce legislation without delay to provide voter protections in political advertising consistent with existing con- consumer protections? And in response to uh, Sally Stegall's bill, the Prime Minister expressed concern but failed to commit to any real action on this front. Order. The challenge which we have of dealing with this, it's complex. You don't want to interfere with any freedom of expression. But you uh, look, if we had that bill and there was some sort of semblance of truth in advertising, then uh, the vast majority of the no-ads would have to at least preface some of the material with, you know, the Aboriginal people you're hearing from in this um, advertisement don't represent the vast majority of Aboriginal people. It's something that we desperately, I mean, I personally think we desperately need in the lead up to the next election because what we've seen throughout the referendum is that the conservative side of politics has tried Trumpian politics, trying to establish a a different dimension for truth and for uh uh, political advertising and for campaigning, um, if we don't have a bill like that in the lead-up to the next election, and it's got to be more than just uh, radio and, and, and television spending, it's got to apply to social media as well, then we are well on the path to Trumpian type of politics and a post-truth democracy as we've seen in the US. Mm. And, you know, political advertising and lies in political advertising is one thing, but there were plenty of lies outside of the advertising exactly. context, right? Yeah, absolutely. One of the big lies was purporting to represent grassroots communities, saying that uh, the vast uh, majority of people in remote and regional communities in remote Australia, um, through the Northern Territory up to the top end, didn't support the voice. And there, of course, wasn't enough curiosity from the press gallery as to check whether those claims were true. And as we've seen on Saturday night and as the week has rolled on, those orange dots in the electoral map have shone brighter and brighter, showing that the remote communities of Northern Territory, Western Australia, Queensland, resoundingly wanted the voice. So that was one lie that was told, but there were so many other lies told around uh, things like uh, the true history of this place, around intergenerational trauma, around the spend on Aboriginal uh, dollars, which all went into an overall narrative which gave people on Saturday an easy out. If people were a soft yes, there was enough there within the no campaign to make them a soft no. If people were a soft no, they became a hard no. And, you know, uh, the result speaks for itself. And on Jacinta Price, she really became the leader of the no side to an extent, but she did agree that there are Indigenous issues to address. So, you know, I guess the floor is hers. She got the result she wanted. What's her plan, if not the voice? For the conservative side of politics, having now voted down the voice, she has herself become the voice 
she's clearly going to be the person that uh, the coalition listen to on matters like this. I rise today to speak on the urgent need for Prime Minister Albanese and the Labor government to support the coalition's call for a royal commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. This week she tabled a motion in the Senate to hold a commission into Indigenous child sexual abuse, but that was voted down. I've never been so incredibly furious to have to sit through and listen to the speeches being made by members of this parliament as to why they are denying the voices of vulnerable children to be heard. We've had a plethora of uh, rural commissions, uh, reports, coronial reports, coronial inquests. You can stack them as high as a skyscraper into things like uh, child sexual abuse in remote communities. We don't need another one. Uh, from my perspective, it was just a, a point that she raised to sort of build her credentials within the parliament after the referendum. And, of course, she's used that to try and paint the Greens and some of the independent senators and, of course, the government as not being serious about addressing issues like that. And in the lead-up to the next election, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Jacinda Price's profile because we have an opposition that is clearly not interested in Indigenous affairs. And so what that means for the Shadow Minister for Indigenous Australians remains to be seen. After the break, is it possible to move towards a treaty now that the voice has been defeated? For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for the Saturday paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. Daniel, on Sunday when you joined us, we talked about the Uluru Statement from the Heart being dead, and many people this week are trying to grapple with another way forward for reconciliation now and are looking to treaty. Can you tell me where that effort is now? Well, the idea of treaty was dangled in front of the Australian people throughout the course of the campaign by people on the conservative no side and people on the progressive no side as a way forward, as something that would be better and more meaningful than The Voice. Now, that's all fine and good. That's a very noble thing, and I'm, I'm personally someone who believes in treaty. But in terms of the work that needs to be done to get to a national treaty, there is a, a barren landscape when it comes to treaty. Treaty is a very, very difficult outcome to achieve. Otherwise, it would have happened by now. And so we're in a, we're in a place where 
the leadership that took uh, Australia and, and Indigenous people to a referendum are spent. They're exhausted. They're undertaking a week's silence. We don't know what their position will be after this. But at the moment, there is uh, no leadership from within the Indigenous community to be able to create a movement that will get us to treaty. And so therefore, again, that sort of highlights the the, the shallowness of some people within the campaign, people like Warren Mundine, who said that uh, a treaty would start to be negotiated the day after the referendum went down. Well, I haven't seen much of Warren on that front. I haven't seen any sort of big movement towards uh, treaty. We're seeing treaties in uh, states like uh, Victoria and Queensland. Let's just stick with Victoria, for instance, where uh, members of the opposition here are now calling for the treaty to be scrapped. Uh, we're seeing that the opposition in Queensland already backpedalling on their commitment to the treaty process. So it's hard to see where a treaty process will come from. You need a number of things for a treaty process to happen. You need um, uh, goodwill in the light of Saturday's result. I would suggest that there's not a lot of goodwill going around at the moment. You need political will, but the Albanese government's not going to want to touch this with a barge pole. Certainly during this term of government, um, they are now in the, the fight of their lives to make sure that they get a second term with cost of living pressures and a whole range of other issues that people um, that are affecting people. They can't afford to go after something and lose it again. Exactly. They've spent a tremendous amount of political capital here. Um, thankfully for them, it's not actually showing in the polls but they can't afford to spend any more political capital on issues like this, issues that don't resonate with the vast majority of Australians because the results on Saturday show that uh, the vast majority of Australians don't care about these issues. And so there's no political will, there's no um, uh, goodwill <laughs> within the Australian community and for it to happen, there will need to be a grassroots movement from First Nations people, uh, tribal groups, language groups, um, clan groups to come together and sit together and come up with a path towards treaty. Now, that's what The Voice possibly could have been. It could have shown le or given a sort of structure to how that negotiation would happen, right? Because you would have this body of elected officials who could do exactly that. Exactly. The, the, a body of elected uh, officials as outlined in the Karma Langton report, which could have sat around at the table and, you know, basically put the meat on the bones of what a treaty process would actually look like. But we're now five steps behind that point. And Daniel, as we head into the next chapter of Indigenous Affairs, I wonder what you think the nature of the debate and discussion and action will be. You know, I was listening to Isabella Higgins this week on the ABC talk about this idea that the voice is a line in the sand for how Indigenous leaders might negotiate in future, that, you know, the debate and language from them might not be so kind and friendly anymore. How do you see it? Well, I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart was a generous offering. It was a peaceful offering. It was an offering that was there to strengthen Australia's democracy and to strengthen Australia's understanding of the plight of First Nations people, but also the, the true history of this place. This failing, this being rejected so categorically by all Australians, it will change the way Indigenous Australians want to interact with the rest of the country. It will change whether kindness is the best approach. Uh, I think there's a lot of anger in what um, Isabella said. I think there's a lot of anger floating about 
uh, the place, both through um, Indigenous communities, but also uh, the communities of allies around the country as well. Often in the community, it is well understood that black anger is not tolerated. And so we see leaders pull in their rage, pull in their sadness and constantly use language of generosity, use graciousness to try and appeal to the Australian people. And after this, I think there will be a generation of leaders who have been burnt by this. I think it's going to take a lot of time for the dust to settle on this, but I think the scars will run deep and run deep for a long time. People now walking the streets of uh, Australia and particularly regional Australia will no longer see uh, friendly faces in their mind. They won't see people that could potentially be an ally with some of these issues affecting Indigenous communities. Some of the highest populations in Victoria, for instance, some of those townships where there are large populations of First Nations people resoundingly voted against the voice. So you've just got to wonder what it means for not only reconciliation but for the social cohesion of some of these remote communities and regional communities. Daniel, thanks so much for your time today. Pleasure. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Memento. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Also in the news today, more than 30 Australian aid groups have signed an open letter to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese urging the Australian government to use its influence to seek an urgent ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. It comes as the Australian government has updated its travel guidance for Lebanon, telling Australians not to travel to the country as tensions escalate in the Middle East. And the Federal Liberal Party has failed in a last-ditch attempt at preventing the ACT from decriminalising small amounts of illegal drugs for personal use. WA Senator Michaelia Cash alleged that the change, which would see fines replace criminal charges in some instances, would lead to people from Sydney travelling to the ACT to do as many as 15 lines during trips to Canberra. 7am is a daily show from The Monthly and The Saturday Paper. It's produced by Cara Jensen-McKinnon, Zoltan Vecho, Shane Anderson, Yo Chung and Sam Loy. Our senior producer is Chris Dengate. Our technical producer is Atticus Basto. Our editor is Scott Mitchell. Sarah McVie is our head of audio. Eric Jensen is our editor-in-chief. Mixing by Andy Elston, Travis Evans and Atticus Basto. Our theme music is by Ned Beckley and Josh Hogan of Envelope Audio. I'm Ange McCormack. This is 7am. We'll be back next week.